Let's pray together. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. So we are awed that we can stand by Terry and Wendy as Wendy's mother hovers on the brink of eternity and know she will not ever die. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the one who tasted death for her will embrace her and she will not see it, but only him. Make that a good crossing, Lord. And grant us a a seriousness here, Lord, about these things, because all that we're talking about here on the earth is so short. This slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not to the things that are seen, and oh, how present they are with us, the seen things. But we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So grant that we would Think and speak and feel and pray and rejoice on the brink of eternity today. Seeing more clearly with clouds blown away over that brink into your everlasting glory. Draw near and guide our thinking. Root it firmly in your unshakable word, I pray. Transform your people, empower your churches, release your mission for this nation and for the nations. And meet needs in this room, Lord, that nobody has begun to articulate. And Some sit there in the absolute isolation of their pain because it cannot be spoken, it cannot be spoken. But you see it and you know it. And you can heal it and give grace to bear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We have about three hours together today or so. And um, picking up where we left off last night, I began to try to get at the dynamic of living by faith in future grace by showing how the faith which justifies is also the faith that sanctifies, and the way it does it is by severing the root of sin and taking away the power of the dominance and the compulsion of sin, because the power of sin is in the promises that it makes, the deceitful lies that life will go better, even if only tonight. And you ask the average alcoholic, don't you know you're ruining your life? They'll say, yes. 
I watched just about 10 minutes of TV last night on a drug program interviewing these guys who need about 50 to 150 pounds a day to do their drug thing. And they're saying, and they were asking, don't you know that you're going to get caught someday and that you're ruining your life and you're ruining your family? Yes. The drug is the bottom line. The, the power of sin is absolutely terrifying and awesome. And it's through sin's promise. At least today you'll go better. At least this afternoon you'll have a high. You don't know what's coming in the future. The hopelessness of the future is what makes most teenagers do stupid things. Drink themselves crazy or smoke themselves into cancer or drug themselves into a fried brain. They don't have any tomorrow inner city America. So future grace and the confidence that it's going to be there with a better future. That confidence severs the power of sins lying. So we began to unpack that then by saying faith is the great worker. We gave you texts on that. Then we shifted over to faith as power, not just pardon. The great mistakes, I think, is thinking of saving faith as faith in the pardon of the cross, period. That's not what saving faith is, period. That's saving faith, but not period. Saving faith is the embracing of the whole Christ and all that God is for us in him. Especially, now, new point, the future that he is for us in him. So my first point this morning is that faith is future-oriented mainly. Now you might have been taught that it's mainly backward-oriented on the cross. I want to try to make a case that it's mainly future-oriented, and then we'll relate it to the backward orientation on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Just a few texts here. Because really, I'm hastening toward these yellow pages at the bottom of my pile here, which are all sin pages. <laughs> Actually, the first one is love, then covetousness, and then anxiety, and then lust, and then impatience, and then bitterness. I want to get specific in how you sever the root of these particular sins. And so I'm hastening on here. Hebrews 11.1, 1. faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hoped for. Faith has a future orientation. By faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, Sarah did that, and the faith is always in a promise. So I'm arguing that saving faith is essentially trusting Christ for promises that he makes, that he'll fulfill them. That saving faith mainly. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, what is this? If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So you see how those two coordinate? Continue in the faith, don't be moved from the hope of the gospel. So faith is a faith in promises for the hope of the gospel. 
When Christ comes to a person, he doesn't just say, I did something for you. Look at it, think about it, believe in it. And then Christ walks away and says, good, you've got your eyes fixed on the act. He doesn't, he comes and he says, there's a life to be lived, there's a future to be experienced, and I've got grace for every minute of it. And every age of it, trust me for that. So what are you facing this week when you go back? What are you facing? Saving faith looks at it and says, he's going to work it together for good. He's going to show his might on my behalf. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. He will be my helper. That saving faith, that's not another thing. That's faith, that's life in Christ. That's union with the Lord. That's what he offers. That's the gospel. I will be there for you to work everything together for your good forever and ever and ever. So faith is future oriented. Now then what's the function of bygone grace? Future grace and bygone grace or past grace. Point number two, the key verse here, it is probably my favorite verse in all the Bible. It's hard to pick favorite verses, but I go back to it again and again. Romans 8, 32, the great eight, as the Puritans used to call it, the great eight. If there's a pinnacle in the Bible, it's Romans. And if there's a pinnacle in Romans, it's eight. And if there's a pinnacle in eight, I think it's 32. (laughs) He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How shall he not then freely with him give us all things? Now, there's a logic there. There's a fancy logical name for this kind of logic. A fortiori, it's called. Let's change it into a statement instead of a rhetorical question. How shall he then not? You know what that means. He certainly will is what it means. There is a past half to the verse. And there is a future half to the verse. And they are logically correlated as if he did that, surely he'll do that. So, the the past half of the verse says, He did not spare His only Son. He gave Christ. As though that were the hardest thing in the universe to do. And then it draws this logical inference. If He did that, which must have been the hardest thing to do, and then the shift goes to the future. Will he not, or certainly he will now freely, because of that, do this, namely give you all things. And the all things means that you need for your fullest enjoyment of God forever and ever. He will do all things for you most certainly. So if you ask me now, how does past grace pour it out at the cross? And future grace poured out from right now to eternity in your life relate to each other. I would say 
That when a person becomes a Christian, they are to look at the cross. And God says, look what I did. Look what I did for sinners. Be moved by that. Be stirred by that. Fall in love with me because of that. And then come over and stand on it here. But when you stand on it, don't look down. Look forward and walk on it forward. The point of past grace is not to fixate on. It's not to fixate on and, and all of your life is just looking back, looking at the cross, looking at the resurrection, even in worship. The point of the cross, according to Romans 8.32, is to empower you with confidence to know that tomorrow he's for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you tomorrow or this afternoon or five minutes from now? Where all of your anxieties are coming from. Who is anxious about yesterday? Raise your hand if you're anxious about yesterday. Nobody. There's no problem with yesterday. There's only one problem in the world. Tomorrow. If God is not there tomorrow, there is no gospel. All my problems are tomorrow. Even if I'm sick as a dog now, the question is, will I stay sick forever? That's the question. Even if I feel damned now, that's not the question. The question is, for eternity? Tomorrow is the big issue in life. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, Jesus said. So my relationship between past grace, please do not say I minimize the cross. I have no future without the cross. All my future was purchased by the cross. All my forgiveness, all God's help, all future grace was purchased by past grace. Is that clear? We are not minimizing the cross by saying that faith is future oriented. Everything that faith trusts in for tomorrow was purchased by one single finished sacrifice. And vindicated by the resurrection of Jesus. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. Walk into life knowing that's where you're going to meet God. All the promises are out there waiting for you. I'll do it. I'll be there. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you with my victorious right hand. Have I not charged you? Be strong and be of good courage. Be not frightened. Neither be dismayed. I will be with you. That's future grace. I will be with you. Walk into that future with me and without anxiety. So that's the first two points. Faith is future oriented and it orients on the future because the cross has purchased the future for us. And God will be there with future grace abounding for every need that you have. You got to trust that this is the power to sever sin. This is the power to sever sin. Now, third point today. This faith that is oriented on the future is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus in the future. A being satisfied. I am going to stress now the affectional dimension of faith. Affectional. Emotional. Feeling, whatever you want to call it. It's I, I wish I had some words that didn't have 
connotations of superficiality. The words emotion, the words feeling, maybe not so much the word affection, tend to people to connote whether you've had a good meal or not, whether your stomach is troubled or whether the sun is shining. And so they don't quite do the trick in communication to get at the fact that faith is more than a mental assent to facts. So I'm groping for language here and and just help me by being a sympathetic listener that when I say the affectional dimension of faith, I don't mean anything superficial. I mean something quite profound and yet not something that isn't involving something like emotion or something like feeling. And so I've, I've chosen the word satisfaction, a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, not just an assent to truths, past or future, but a heartfelt, maybe this would be another way to say it, a heartfelt valuing, valuing or treasuring. Maybe that's a helpful word. Treasuring of all that God is for us in Jesus. A few texts to warrant this interpretation of faith. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, if we had time, I would just love to spend several hours developing Johannine faith with you. Faith in the Gospel of John is an awesome thing. But in this verse, which comes close to getting at it briefly, he says, He who comes to me will never hunger, and coming to Jesus in the Gospel of John is a synonym of belief or faith. He who comes to me will never hunger, and then he switches, and the parallel of the verses shows that faith and coming are virtually synonymous, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So my definition of faith in the Gospel of John would be, faith is a coming to Jesus so as to have the soul thirst satisfied. Faith is a a coming, Not see today he's not on the earth to come to physically. So this is a spiritual reality. This is a Drawing near by a spiritual phenomenon in the heart. This is a, an embracing with invisible arms. This is a walking with invisible soul legs toward Jesus. And coming into him and up to him for the satisfaction of soul hunger and the satisfaction of soul thirst. And when faith closes, that's the way the Puritans used to talk about it. When, when faith closes with Christ, the soul has reached the end of its quest and it rests, it reposes, it is satisfied. It has drunk and it has eaten and now those cravings of life have found the end point and they rest in him. That's faith. That's faith. So don't don't equate faith just with here are a series of facts about the death of Jesus. Here's some facts about the resurrection. Or here's some facts about promises in the future that he's going to be with you. 
Now, do you assent to those facts? Yes. That is not yet saving faith. Saving faith is to hear those facts. We must hear the facts. I believe in, in biblical scholarship, for example, in hard study, reading books like Gordon Fee. That's not an easy book. That's wonderful that he held that book up for you all to read. That's tough sledding. And I believe in that. We, we, God gave us brains for a reason. Love God with all your mind. But that's not yet saving faith. Saving faith is when something happens. And here we're moving close to the next point. Something happens by way of an illumination or an enlightenment or a light going on such that there stands forth from the known reality a beauty, a glory, a satisfying treasure that just draws you irresistibly into it because it is satisfying now to your soul and you embrace it. And then it becomes saving faith and a relationship is established. Now, if you go with me, I mean, it sounds like you're sort of sympathetic to that viewpoint. But if you buy that, you have bought into something very controversial and very uh, powerful. The reason it's controversial is that it will make your evangelism difficult. Signatures on a card won't cut it anymore. Decisions alone won't cut it anymore. Walking to the front won't cut it anymore. Praying a prayer alone won't cut it anymore. You have made evangelism a miraculous affair. And we're not talking about any particular demonstrations of the miraculous like you just talked about. There's a miracle before those miracles that everybody has to experience. God comes and goes in those kinds of miracles that Duncan just described in demonstrations of power in giving sight to the blind. Those come and God is sovereign, moves around and does that. But if you even want to begin in the Christian life, you've got to have a miracle whereby you don't just hear a fact, say, I believe that fact. And call that salvation. And then start gutting out your duties of Bible reading. And church attendance. And song singing. There has to be a miraculous work. Whereby a satisfaction. Something emotional. Something deep and affectional. Embraces Christ as beautiful. As a treasure. Now that's why it is miraculous. The reason it's powerful is because that's the means by which the root of sin is severed. Because if that's justifying faith, you can see immediately why it is sanctifying faith. Can you not? Sanctification means the old bondages of desire begin. They don't have to all happen at once. I'm not, I'm not in a big hurry to get anybody off all their bad habits, but they gotta start falling. The affection is shifting over. Christ is beginning to ooze down into every crevice of the heart. He's beginning to gouge out. I, I picture the heart as a, uh, a void 
and it has many crevices inside, and the shape of it is for God, the Spirit, to satisfy. Sin has packed putty and mud into many of those crevices, smoothed it over, made it nice and smooth, feels good. And so when there's enough freedom that is gouging out some of this earthly satisfaction in health and wealth and relationships and money and all that stuff, and there's some dissatisfaction that is craving, and God comes and he comes in and he inserts himself perfectly where he was designed in you to fit, and suddenly you go, yes! That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm looking for. Well, he's got some more work to do. It's like the you go to the dentist for a tooth cleaning. They take that awful thing. They go, and they stick it up under your gum. That's sanctification. The process of becoming satisfied with God is not all roses. Some things die. And the death is painful. Death is painful. But the streaming in, I mean, Duncan articulated it so beautifully. It was sacrifice. It was pain. But over time, and even I would guess at the bottom during it, God is moving, coming in. I'm better. I'm more. I'm adequate. I'm sufficient. And when that happens in power, sins begin to go. It's a process our whole life long. So my, my third point, if I'm counting right here, is that faith is a being satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus. I know I only gave you one verse to support that. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight that I'm passing over because I really want to move with you. It sounds like you don't need too much persuading on that one. My fourth point is the role of the Holy Spirit in enabling obedience. What is it? I haven't given you the point yet. I'm raising the question. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Because it sounds like I have only to this point, in fact, I have only to this point, described the dynamic of saving faith and sanctifying faith in terms of seeing the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the glory of Christ and being drawn into it because it's true as you assess it with your mind and it is satisfying as you assess it with your heart and you close with it and you rest in it and then you hear its promises of future grace and you say yes and you walk in it and I haven't even mentioned the Holy Spirit in that dynamic. What's his role? Let me draw out something from Galatians here that this this I wrote in my margin here might be the most important insight I got fresh insight in the whole book of future grace. So let me tell you what what it is in Galatians 522. You know, all these verses by heart. The fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness. So now here I am. I have just said that the key to severing the root of impatience, say, or lack of love or lack of joy, the key to severing that root is faith in future grace. 
Being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus severs the root of impatience, for example. The text says it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Or how do they coordinate? Is it faith that yields triumph over impatience or lust, lack of self-control? Or is it the Holy Spirit that works triumph over impatience and lack of self-control or lovelessness? The text says those are fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 6, just setting up the tension within Galatians itself. So it's not between me and Galatians. <laughs> it's between Paul and Paul. So Galatians 5.22 says that love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.6 says, In Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. So faith works through love and the Holy Spirit produces love. Faith produces love and the Holy Spirit produces love. Well, do the, does, does faith do it sometimes and the Holy Spirit do it sometimes? Or how do they connect? Now, the link also comes from Galatians 3, 5. Galatians 3, 5. Does then he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, including all the fruits of the Spirit, I believe, do so by works of law? The answer to that is no. Or by hearing with faith? And the answer to that is yes. Now we've got the spirit and faith coordinated in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, he poses the question, all right, if the spirit is moving among you, if he is doing these works, if he is producing love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, like 5.22 says he is, does he do that in response to works of law? No. Well, then when and how and along what channels does he do it? Answer, by hearing with faith. By hearing with faith. That is a very interesting phrase. Hearing with faith. Not just faith. He didn't say, does he do it by works or does he do it by faith? He could have said that. But he said, does he do it by works of law or does he do it by hearing of faith? Why does he say? Why does he coordinate the work of the Holy Spirit with the hearing of faith? And I believe the reason is, is because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. When promises are given, I'll be with you. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you. The heart is drawn out in faith and the Holy Spirit moves on the channel of that faith. And therefore, both are true. The Holy Spirit is giving peace and faith is giving peace. Consciously, it feels like faith. If you were to ask me, what have you done to get peace? I would say, I believe promises. Somebody says, how can you have so much peace? How can Terry be here sitting there when his mother-in-law is so ailing right now? And his answer would be, I'm trusting God with my mother-in-law. I am doing that. I am trusting God with my wife and my, my mother. But another answer would also be, 
along the channel of that, trust is flowing God Almighty in his heart. And Wendy's heart is flowing along the channel of faith. They're coordinate. They're always coordinate. Where faith moves, the Holy Spirit moves. Where the Holy Spirit moves, faith moves. You can't separate the two. And so we must... Now, here's, here's what I said might be the most important new insight I've got. Why does God ordain things such that he grants the Spirit to work things like peace, love, joy, patience, only where the mind is apprehending word or truth from Christ? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Why does he coordinate Power with a heard word from Christ. Why? The answer is from John that the Holy Spirit is a very humble member of the Trinity. He is very self-effacing. He loves to get behind Jesus. It says, in fact, J.I. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, says the whole thesis of his book is, that the Holy Spirit was sent to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit is a, if, if the pulpit were Jesus, the Holy Spirit would just be pumping Jesus. Pumping Jesus like this. Push Jesus, push Jesus. Which means that when the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in your life, he wants Jesus to get the credit. And therefore he coordinates his work with trusting the promise of Jesus. He wants your eyes to be on the cross. He wants your ears to be on the word. And so he's a quiet member in the Trinity. He's pushing Jesus all the time. He's pushing the word. And mentally, the framework of our thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit should be we think and we focus on objective words from the Lord Jesus and we trust those. That's what it feels like is going on in our mind. This precious, awesome promise has been given to me by an infallible and loving Savior. I will trust it. That very act is the work of the Holy Spirit. And through that act flows the Holy Spirit because there Jesus is being exalted. And where Jesus is being exalted, the Holy Spirit is moving. So the concept of living by faith in future grace, that is promises, is no different than walking by the Spirit. They are synonymous concepts. The one describing it from God's sovereign side of what he does. The other describing it from my conscious side of what I must do and experience. Now, fourth or fifth point, whichever it is, that that point was that the Holy Spirit does his work along the channels of faith in future grace. The next point is the role of gratitude. This is controversial in the book. In fact, I begin the book Future Grace, but with two chapters on what I call the debtor's ethic. What I'm after here, that is what I'm opposed to here, is the almost universal assumption that the primary motive of obedience in the Christian life is gratitude. I don't think that's true. 
Nowhere in the Bible, this is an amazing statement for me to make, and I say it with some fear and trembling in Bible people. Nowhere in the Bible is gratitude connected explicitly with obedience. Nowhere. Explicitly. You can make it connected, but nowhere is it explicitly connected. We do not find the phrase out of gratitude. I acted out of gratitude. We don't find that in the Bible. Or ingratitude for acts toward God. Christian obedience is called the work of faith, never the work of gratitude. We find expressions like live by faith, walk by faith, but never live by gratitude or walk by gratitude. We find faith working through love, but not gratitude working through love. We find sanctification is by faith in the truth, not by gratitude for the truth. We find faith without works is dead, not gratitude without works is dead. We find, oh, men of little faith, not, oh, men of little gratitude, when they don't do what they ought to do. Why is that? Why? This is sort of devastating to me. Why? is the most prevalent argument for how obedience is brought about consciously, namely gratitude, the most prevalent argument in evangelicalism in America, absent from the Bible. Totally. At least at the explicit level where we make it. And I'm not sure about that. I think it's a failure to understand everything I've said for the last 30 minutes. Namely, that faith is future-oriented, not past-oriented, where gratitude, gratitude is past-oriented. When you face back and you look at the cross, you feel gratitude. Or when I look at yesterday and your wonderful response to me, I feel gratitude. And I should. I'd be wicked not to. In fact, Romans 1 says you're not saved if you don't feel gratitude. They did not glorify him or give him thanks. Romans 1, 18 to 20. Thanks is essential. Gratitude is essential. But it's not, in the Bible, the key motive for obedience. It is a key and indispensable element in worship. It is not the key to obedience. Faith in future grace is the key to obedience. Now, let me, let me argue for that for a minute. What I'm arguing against here is a subtle thing that I'm afraid has crept in over the years through hymnology and ways of talking. He gave, he gave his life for me. What hast thou given for him. Mm, is that good? Is that a good way to sing? Look what he gave to me now as I turn with that at my back and feeling gratitude. My life becomes a giving to him to repay, if possible, some measure of that grace that he gave to me. Many people conceive of the Christian life that way. He gave so much for me. He did so much for me. How can I not do more for him? And then they use the words gratitude. 
Gratitude will get you to the mission field. Or gratitude will help you to stay up late discipling somebody. Or gratitude will break a sin. And it's just not in the Bible. And the reason it's not, I believe, is number one, I'll give you maybe three reasons here that trouble me with this concept of how to live the Christian life. You can never pay God back by doing anything for him. In fact, if you do things for him as you ought to do them, you go deeper in debt, not pay back part of the debt. If you've understood everything I've said, or mainly what I've said up till now, you will understand that for me to walk from here to the edge of the platform is a gift of grace. Suppose God said, John Piper, walk to the edge of the platform. Okay. I did it for you, Lord. I did it for you. I'm so thankful for everything you've done in the past that I have now, out of gratitude, done what you told me to do. And therefore, I have paid back some of the debt of grace that you gave me. And God would say to me, who got you here? Who sustained your molecules while you were walking across here? Who inclined your heart to obey me? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the what? The grace of God that was with me. You can't pay back one millimeter of grace. You can only go deeper in debt. And you should go deeper in debt because the giver gets the... Yes. Therefore... As you contemplate what should motivate you to go from here to there, don't think, I've got to repay some of the debt of grace that he told me to go and he's done so much good in the past. How can I not do what he tells me to do? Don't think that way. Think he's calling me to cross here into more grace. Oh, more of God. More grace. Here it comes. Look at this. I'm walking in obedience. Grace is just abounding everywhere. And I'm here now and it's more blessed to have crossed it than to stay over there. There's a really different way of looking at life here. And I think it's big. I think it's important. You can't pay grace back. Grace pays debts. It doesn't create them. Here's my second reason. I'm troubled by that way of living or conceiving of the Christian life. And frankly, I don't want to be too hard on this because there are Tens of thousands of godly people whose hearts are better than their theology. <laughs> if that weren't true, we'd all be in a big fix. Our, our efforts to articulate the reality need to be brought as closely into conformity with biblical truth as they can be. But I said to Terry the other day that when someone asked J.I. Packer why God was pleased to bless for conversions 
movements in England, say, or America, which seem so diverse theologically that somebody's got to be wrong. It isn't because God is indifferent to theology. It's because God loves to honor the needle of truth in a haystack of error. That's a quote from J.I. Packer. You, you can find it in Keep in Step with the Spirit, which I highly recommend. My second reason for being troubled by this debtor's ethic way of living the Christian life is suppose, hypothetically, that you could, by crossing from here to there, or by doing back part of the debt of grace, it would cease to be grace. And become a business transaction. Tit for tat. He gave me. I give to him. We're even, right? I don't want to be even. I need grace. He has not set up a world in which there can be a transaction between me and him that way. It's all of God. And he means for it to be all of God forever and ever and ever. Which is why that beautiful picture in Luke 12 of the second coming. I mean, I'm just blown away by Luke 12:33. I think, following where, where it pictures at the second coming a banquet and the glorious Christ who was once humbled on the earth as a servant. And we expect to come mighty power with flaming fire. And we sit. And be quiet. The picture there is, it says he will bind himself with a towel. And we'll sit at table and he'll serve us. That's the second coming. He will never relinquish the right to serve you. You will never be put in the position to make him look needy. Ever, you'll sit at table and he'll have the apron on. And you'll look needy because you are forever. And he will always get the glory of baking the bread perfectly. And making the meat perfectly. And setting the table perfectly. And standing on the correct side at the restaurant perfectly. He'll never relinquish those Creator rights to be the all-sufficient servant of our need. So if you could pay it back, it'd be a bad deal because it would no longer be grace. And my third problem is that I think a life that tries to live in terms of a motivation of gratitude will be a past-oriented life when it needs to be a future-oriented life. <laughs> my little saying doesn't work in Britain because you don't use the word gas for petrol. We use the word gas for what you put in your car. And so I like to say in American English, you can't run your car on gratitude for yesterday's gas. Petrol just doesn't sound as good. <laughs> you can't run your little putt-putting on gratitude for yesterday's petrol. You see, see I, I, want, I like alliteration. But you can hear the point. You can't run your car... Here to there on gratitude for yesterday's gas. You gotta have more gas, grace. Today, I'm running from here to there, all my good deeds, 
All my walk with Christ is enabled by future grace. And I mean future five seconds from now and five million years from now. All that grace is my enablement and my motivation for obedience. One more point here, perhaps, before we uh, maybe take a question and, and break for a bit. I think we're supposed to end at 11.30 this first time. I want to stress that what I have been saying up till now, especially that point about faith being a matter of being satisfied with all that God is in Jesus, that's real threatening to people. You see, if you keep faith at the mere decisional level, if you make faith real easy, if you just make it a, a signing or a prayer or some mental assent or something simple like that, that you can manage. See, we Americans, we manage. We are consummate managers, building big things, being efficient, getting them done. And so you can let an American get his hand on the gospel and he fixes it. <laughs> so it's manageable. We got to do X number of conversions on this campus. We can do that. We know percentages be about 25 percent. So hit you want 200 conversions. Get this thing into the hand of 800 people. And say these words and get these signatures and we got it. We can do these things. Now, if you if you think that sounds a little unbiblical. <laughs> and you agree with me that what you're asking for and calling for is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And you cannot manage. You can be a means and a blessing. But I planted, Apollos watered and who gave the growth? OK, if. I can plant and I can water, but only God creates life. If you agree with that, then you make life scary for people. And you raise the specter of what Michael Eaton is concerned about. Assurance. Right? The harder you make faith. The more you define faith in terms of a life-transforming power, the more you jeopardize assurance. That's what I've done this morning. You've walked into it. You're in a trap right now. So a couple of things before we take a break. One is, I believe the Christian life and assurance resting in the Grace of God and having a deep, sweet confidence that he's for me is a daily battle. A daily battle. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Fight the good fight, not a bad fight. If you fight, not a bad fight. It's a good fight. Fighting the fight of faith. We're not talking about some peripheral thing here. The fight to stay a believer. I overstate it sometimes with my people by saying, I got to get saved every morning. Now, they know my theology well enough to know I don't think you drop in and out of salvation. Romans 8.30 has settled that for me a long time ago. Those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. There are no dropouts between justification and glorification. But I also believe that perseverance between justification and glorification is essential. And that if you drop out, 
you were not truly saved. Not truly justified. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have gone out. But they went out that it might be clearly seen that they were not of us. So the evidence of genuineness is perseverance. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. I'll close with this. And then we can maybe take some questions on on these things next time. Hebrews. Hebrews is the great book of assurance. The great book of assurance is the book of Hebrews. It contains the text that seem to threaten assurance most and demand it most. The book of Hebrews is written to help you have assurance. But it says some things that are very strange. For example, chapter 3, verse 14. Now, got to have some Greek scholars in your midst. Every movement has to have some scholars. So, Terry and the rest of you leaders, be sure over time that you recognize some gifts in this room and encourage the study of Greek and Hebrew for some. Every group has to have some scholars who can test what I'm about to tell you because if you don't read Greek... And you have a translation that's different from mine. You won't know whether I'm telling you the truth or not. And there's nobody in your movement to check it out. So what are you going to do? Every movement needs to grow with a cluster of people who are careful biblical scholars who can read the Greek and Hebrew and test all things. The tenses of verbs in Hebrews 3.14 are all important. So I'm going to translate it very literally here. And you judge by your version whether I'm suspicious or not. For we have shared in Christ. It's a perfect tense. We have come to share. We have shared in Christ. If only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. What that says is the test and proof of a past reality of coming to share in Christ is perseverance. It doesn't say we will come to share in Christ if we persevere. That would be unbiblical. It says you came freely by grace, through faith, to share in Christ at a point in the past and were united to him. What's the evidence of that? If you hold fast your confidence firm to the end. So perseverance is the evidence of initial reality. Michael Eaton does not agree with that. Because it seems to call assurance into question. How can you be sure you're holding fast tight enough to give warrant to your initial faith? Now go with me to chapter 10, verse 14. You may be able to remember these in your head by saying 314 and 1014. Just some key 
Key verses in Hebrews. 10.14. Glorious, glorious verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Now just stop there and make sure you feel the force of that. By a single offering, he has, past tense, perfected somebody, some group, for all time. We're talking perfected for all time. We're talking security, mega security here. Now the question is, who's he talking about? Who is he talking about? And look what he says in answer to that question. Here again, the tenses are important. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being present tense now, not past, ongoing, present, continuous action, are being sanctified. So what is your warrant for believing that you are a perfect person? The process that you are becoming perfect is the warrant for believing you are perfect. Isn't that strange? (laughs) If you are now in the process of being sanctified, you're not there yet. Nobody's there yet. But if you are in the process of having sins slain in your life and fighting them back, And confessing your sins and making progress and then falling back and making some more progress. You're perfect in Christ. That's what I see in that verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Now, we got to say more about assurance than we can, and we will, but we need to stop and take a break here. This is a short break now, half an hour, be back at noon, but let's, uh, let me pray with you, break, and, uh, and then we'll be back at noon and pick it up right here. Father, hold us here, I pray, give us the refreshment we need for this half hour to do serious work on these important matters when we come back. And I pray that you would apply now, Holy Spirit, these truths to hearts and minds so that they grip and transform and indeed give deep, profound, settled assurance to your people that they are perfect in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.